Ukraine is preparing a counteroffensive which might change this war and is expecting ammunition and weapons from its international partners. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. In this episode, we will try to discuss the international context of the Ukrainian preparations. This is our series Around Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of Ukraine World. And my co-host today is Maxim Panchenko, who is analyst at Ukraine World. Hello, Maxim. Ukraine World is a website in English about Ukraine, uh, done by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front line at paypal, ukraine.resistinggmail.com. So, Maxim, let's discuss the international context of this Russian invasion in our a weekly series which is called Around Ukraine. Maybe you could outline the major topics that we can discuss today. So as you mentioned, Ukraine is preparing a counteroffensive for this uh, next couple of weeks or maybe month. And in this context, we should uh, discuss the scramble for ammunition for Ukraine around the world, particularly in the West, the effort led by the European Union particularly. And also there are news that uh, the US is increasingly considering uh, preparing Ukrainian pilots, as a couple of them are already reportedly on the ground there to to negotiate that. Uh, we are also going to touch uh, upon some broader topics like the G20 summit uh, that uh, happened in uh, New Delhi. And of course, uh, we're going to speak about the expiration of the current uh, green deal, uh, not green deal, grain deal, uh, about the export of grain from Ukraine and uh, what the stakes now are is other any chances to prolong that and so on okay so let's discuss let's first discuss with the of course touch upon the ammunition topic and uh, ukrainian preparations what are your your analysis what is going on in this respect because we understand that something is going to happen in in spring ukraine is actually expecting uh the change of the weather uh, right now, the fierce fights around Bakhmut are actually aimed at um, holding, exhausting the Russian uh, potential, the, Rus- the, the Russian offensive potential. And there are different um, different interpretations of what is going on. Some people say that Russia is trying to exhaust Ukraine. Other people are saying that Ukraine is trying to exhaust Russia to prepare its counteroffensive. So, of course, Ukraine is waiting now for armaments and ammunition to arrive within probably several weeks, within several months, to be ready in April and May to launch counteroffensive. And but what is the situation with the preparation and with the international context? Well, first of all, uh, it should be reminded what uh, kind of weapons we have in the battlefield, because in addition to the Soviet-type weapons that were inherited and the production of which was inherited by Ukraine after the uh, independence, uh, we also have uh, a big amount, uh, maybe that is even the majority of what we have, of, of uh, weapons uh, delivered by Western partners, and those are weapons of NATO standards. So we have a problem uh, with the ammunition to both types, 
weapons because uh, when it comes to the Soviet type uh, uh, weapons, uh, we cannot effectively produce them uh, because our industry, our military industry, as so many other different industries in Ukraine, uh, is uh, under the risk of uh, constant attacks by Russia. Uh, so we need uh, to scramble around the world, uh, sometimes among not so obvious partners for them to uh, supply us that ammunition. A couple of episodes back, we talked about how Pakistan uh, supplied us reportedly uh, crates with ammunition for our, uh, I think that it was machine guns, but also uh, the 152 millimeter uh, howitzers. Uh, now, when it comes to NATO, the the NATO type, type weapons, the problem here is that Uh, the capacities that uh, NATO countries have um, during the peacetime, and this is the peacetime for NATO, NATO is not in a war, um, those capacities are insufficient to catch up with the needs of Ukraine. NATO cannot produce as much uh, 155 millimeter uh, caliber uh, ammunition as Ukraine needs, uh, which is why the Um, discussion that is now uh, being led in the West, and this is the effort led by the European Union, who coordinates uh, the efforts uh, primarily by the EU member states, um, is to take the weapons that already are uh, at warehouses, that already are stockpiled uh, among the NATO states, and to deliver them to Ukraine, and then to launch production to replenish the NATO member states' uh, stockpiles. Because if we go in for production of ammunition for Ukraine specifically and wait that long, uh, that this poses a major risk for how it is going to go in the battlefield. Right. At the same time, there is a problem of uh, of Russian supplies and Russian production, and uh, we have discussed, of course, the role of of China in eventually helping Russia. But from what we can judge, that Russian missile attacks have become much more rare in the past two weeks, and it seems that there is also not a big stock of missiles. Um, Russians started in October from 70-80-100 missiles per launch. Now the, the the quantities are much more modest. Also the questions about tanks. There are There is information that uh, Russia might be going to take the older tanks, uh, T-62, I think it's called, right, uh, which are actually very, very old right now. They are 50-60 years old. So, of course, we should understand that it, it, why I'm saying that is that Russia is also exhausting its resources. And it's not like NATO is helping or international partners are helping Ukraine uh, against the infinitely bigger enemy which has a limited number of resources. What we might judge from is that the situation on the front line is also has a big uh, ammunition Uh, ammunition, what we call ammunition hunger or ammunition, yeah, ammunition hunger on the Russian side as well. Uh, what what else? Uh, Ukrainian pilots also went to the United States. And uh, this, of course, is, is a question whether Ukraine will get fighter jets. What we can say about this? Well, the information about this is so far limited, but uh, nonetheless, uh, quite inspiring even though modestly at this point, but still. Uh, so the information basically is that two Ukraine, only 
as little as two Ukrainian pilots uh, have traveled to the United States. Uh, they reportedly are undergoing a skills evaluation in Arizona. And uh, because of how little information, official information we have, we cannot really judge uh, what is the bigger picture here. But presumably, uh, the United States want to uh, see what the skills of Ukrainian pilots are generally, uh, using the example of these two uh, pilots that have already traveled, to see if indeed it is not such a big leap uh, to provide Ukraine with uh, fighter jets Uh, of the uh, of the Western standard, so basically the U.S. wants to make sure, presumably, if if this transfer would be doable, and whether it would be uh, worth the cost, so to say. Uh, so at least for now, even though everything is so clandestine, at least for now. Uh, the good news is that the process is ongoing, that the story has not been shut down because there have been different waves of attention, of public and media attention to whether or whether or not we're going to uh, receive these F-16 fighter jets or any other Western fighter jets. And so at least we know that the story is, is still being entertained and that is a good thing for Ukraine. Yeah, this is something that we have discussed previously, that there are red lines, which are actually not red lines, maybe they are rosy lines or something like that, because they are being crossed, fortunately, and uh, it's very important that they continue to be crossed. Remember that initially, at the initial stages of the war, there was no talk about fighter jets, there's no talk about air defense systems, there was no talk about long-range missiles or such systems as Patriot anti-air air defense systems or such systems as HIMARS, and they gradually started to uh, come to Ukraine. Well, we should remember then back in, let's say, 2015, 2016, 2017, there was no talk about javelins. Mm-hmm. Remember how javelins were enthusiastically perceived welcomed in Ukraine. I think it was already in 2021 when when it was clear that Russia is preparing something. There was news that javelins are coming and uh, how big news it was for Ukrainians. Now we understand that javelins is actually uh, a tool, very important tool for the infantry, of course, to target, uh, target Russian tanks. And they're extremely efficient because Ukrainians, for, for our understanding, Ukrainians destroy over 100 of Russian tanks per month. Uh, and uh, the, the, the total number of the destroyed tanks is well, well before 1,000, 1,000. And uh, it's good because Russian capacity to produce tanks is not that big. Actually, experts estimated around 20, 30 tanks per, per month. So Ukrainians are actually destroying more tanks Uh, than Rus- per month than Russians are able to produce, and this destruction is also linked to this, to the to the weapons, starting from javelins and and loves, and um, and of course going going farther and farther. There was also the news recently by the Polish side that new Patriot systems are arriving into Ukraine, and the first Leopard two tanks are arriving into Ukraine. From uh, from Poland, and this is of course the good news, but the the question is about quantity, of course, and the question about fighter jets. Let's not forget that pilot is one thing, but uh, the maintenance, the all all the logistics is a, mm-hmm. a very complicated story, and uh, 
you know, there are dozens and dozens of people who need to work on, on each particular fighter jets. And of course, the question of maintenance and repair. Uh, I hope this, all these questions are now being discussed. Let's talk about big politics. There was a G20 meeting in New Delhi. Mm, was it good for Ukraine? Seems not some so good because uh, Ukraine was not that present on the summit. Well, yes. Uh, so the issue of the Russia Russia's war against Ukraine was uh, specifically on the agenda, and it was discussed. But uh, first of all, the um, for the second summit in a row, uh, the final statement of the summit did not include any unanimity on uh, any unanimous word, wording or any unanimous condemnation of uh, what is going on. And uh, while it may not be a surprise that uh, Russia was against as being part of the G20, it was against the wording that, you know, any wording about uh, being a perpetrator, um, it is not so well also that Russia was not the only one to be against that unanimity in final conclusions. Uh, because there was also China, who consistently uh, does not support some, such kind of statements, uh, as we have many times discussed in this uh, in this podcast. So this lack of unanimity of G20 is something that uh, is, uh, well, it is a, a sour pill for, for Ukraine in, in, in the sense. And because of the uh, who, what countries make part of the G20 because we're talking about also India, China, but also Brazil, Argentina, South Africa. And this also brings me to my next point, which is the absence of Ukraine at, at, at the summit of, the, of a powerful representation consistent with the one that was during the previous uh, summit in Indonesia, when President Zelensky had the chance to not only just to deliver his address, as he does on many occasions, but also to uh, present his uh, peace formula, the 10-step peace formula. This time, Ukraine was uh, not any comparably visible uh, during the summit and I think we should have been there because again of uh, which economies uh, are represented there it's not only about the quantity about the 80 or 90 percent of the G of the world GDP be, being present in the in the G20 but also that specifically many of those member states are uh, representatives of the global south and that is something that uh, has been a consistent story, a consistent narrative in the in media around the world, I think, about how and why uh, the Global South is – well, it's not reluctant to support Ukraine per se, but it's quite indifferent, indifferent about what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine needs – uh, the support of more countries from that kind of from that group of countries, and I think in that sense, unfortunately, uh, sorry for my being blunt here, but this may have been an opportunity wasted here. Yeah, but um, interestingly, what were the reasons for that? The presence of Russia. Why? Why there was a decision to take Russia and not Ukraine to the summit? I don't think that Ukraine can uh, afford seeing the world at that black and white every time there Russia somewhere you know across the table uh, why then I was two members of the UN when we have been pushing for the exclusion of Russia from the Security Council for for example it is not happening it has not happened in the last uh, month of Ukraine's campaign for that so why am I not leaving the UN there is an extent uh, until which it is reasonable to go in these things 
but uh, not to participate just because there is Russia. Russia will always be there, even if uh, Russia disintegrates, which I don't believe, but so many like to speak about that. Even if that happens, in one form or another, there will be a Moscow-based government, and everybody in the world will deem it necessary to... Uh, to talk to them because they are a center of, of something, you know, of an entity, of a political, geopolitical entity. So I don't think this is the approach we should be taking. I think that we should be taking an approach to exclude Russia from everywhere and including from the UN Security Council and including from G20. And uh, this is also the question for our diplomacy, why Russia is, is still invited to that. Well, we have seen the Lavrov saying that Russia was actually invaded, Russia was attacked, <laughs> and um, the reaction in the hall was not very pleasant maybe for Lavrov, but I mean, he he keeps talking, he keeps talking these points that uh, that it is not Russia who started the war, it is some somebody else who started the war with the help of Ukrainians, all this crap that Russian propaganda is actually spreading. Okay, uh, what else? What happened next? Uh, prolongation of the grain deal. Why is it important? Oh, it has not happened yet, but the reason why we're talking about that because it is about the current grain deal is about to expire. And uh, Russia is uh, trying to turn this these negotiations about the prolongation uh, uh, like a bargaining game uh, because... The original Green Deal was launched in summer, then it was prolonged, I think, in November, in October, November, November, I think. And uh, now when uh, a new iteration is due, Russia is saying, let's uh, play a fair game here, and uh, otherwise we're not going to support the prolongation of, of the Green Deal. And what Russia sees as a fair game, what Russia tries to achieve here is to... Um, as it says, as it presents it, to create equal conditions, not only for the export of Ukrainian grain, but also for the export of Russia's agricultural products. And this is a great area we're uh, coming in here because there are no international sanctions, not EU sanctions, for instance, that are targeting uh, Russia's uh, agricultural sector. It has been a consistent... Um, policy of the European Union, for instance, that we are not going to uh, put sanctions against something that can endanger global food security. But Russia is trying to present this as not just about the agricultural product per se, but also about the logistical chains and about the payment methods. They're trying to say that, okay, we have our grain, but we cannot use some routes, some ships, we cannot use many banks, that have been excluded from SWIFT, for instance, under different rounds of sanctions, to deliver that grain to different regions of the world. So, But the problem is that if sanctions are lifted uh, from, Russia, uh, from Russia, for instance, when it comes to that SWIFT uh, exclusion, Russia is once again going to benefit from uh, trading with the world in, uh, you know, in other areas. So the reasons... And the effect for which Russia, I mean, Russia was punished, basically, being excluded from SWIFT. Uh, but now that punishment will, you know, just go out. So Russia is trying to achieve several things here, just showing that, okay, we're fighting for equal agricultural export, but there are so there is so much for Russia to gain alongside with that. So this is a shady game Russia is playing. 
Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> the game is, of course, to avoid sanctions. The game is to prove that sanctions are not working. The game is to find those loopholes in the sanctions, what Russia has been doing very well since 2014. And um, I don't think that we see a, a big, big impact of the sanctions right now on the Russian economy. Maybe this um, outcome will be prolonged. Maybe it will happen uh, this year, next year. But, uh, of course, we understand that lots, big parts of the world are actually avoiding the sanctions, starting from Turkey, going to China and India and many, many other parts of the world, many other countries. And maybe the last topic for today is uh, the visit of Saudi uh, foreign minister to Ukraine in late uh, late uh, February. What is what is important about this? Well, the important thing about this is that first of all, even in the peacetime, it would be something of a novelty, because uh, I think this is the first uh, official visit of that uh, high level. Even though it's not, of course, the king, but still part of his family. Uh, so that is. Uh, remarkable about uh, the appearance, especially during the war. Uh, but also it is important that uh, why S- Saudi Arabia had uh, any incentive to do that. So first of all, I think uh, that Saudi Arabia is testing the ground pretty much about how it can present itself in this part of the world, how it can project its geopolitical role here. And uh, that had already started with uh, the Saudi Arabia's Uh, participation in uh, the exchange of prisoners between Ukraine and Russia. There was one round when uh, Saudi Arabia helped with that. I think that was mostly about the liberation of the uh, pris- of Ukraine's prisoners, well, prisoners taken from Ukraine who were basically uh, nationals of the third countries. That was the particular round of exchange. But also uh, it is trying, I think, to look for how it can act as inter- an intermediary in the in the war uh, so, and that way to compete with, that ro- with uh, Turkey, for instance, when it comes to that role. And of course, uh, there is the regional interest because the Iran factor here is very important. Uh, Iran is uh, approximating, so to say, with uh, with Russia, starting with this uh, drones exchange program uh, and about all this talks about the possibility of uh, long-range uh, ballistic rockets being, you know, for the ability to export them from Iran to Russia, for it to further use it in Ukraine, in the war against Ukraine. So against that backdrop, uh, Saudi Arabia also needs to Uh, make respective uh, steps to show, to send signals to Iran, who is its primary rival in the region. And uh, so, yes, there is, as you can see, as you can summarize from the politics in the Middle East for the past several months, uh, Saudi Arabia is not the only actor who is seeking that kind of retaliation in diplomatic ways. Uh, there is also Israel, whose uh, position has slowly but still been shifting uh, with regard to the war in Ukraine uh, because of how that impacts all those re- the regional security in the Middle East. Now we have Saudi Arabia. So I think that should be understood in this particular context primarily. That's very interesting and very important to follow this region, what is happening in the Middle East because of the um, in the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Thank you, Maxim. Thanks so much for commenting on this. Uh, it was a podcast explaining Ukraine, our series around Ukraine. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. My co-host today is Maxim Panchenko, expert at 
Ukraine World. Uh, you can support us on patreon.com slash Ukraine World. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front line at paypal ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Also follow us on social networks, on Twitter, Facebook, uh, read our websites and follow this podcast on any platform you want. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine. Thank you.